Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing sepsis. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, my name's Jamie and I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. And my name's Chris, I'm a consultant in emergency medicine and I've recently taken over as sepsis lead for the emergency department. Okay, welcome Chris, thanks for coming. Uh, so today we're going to be discussing uh, sepsis, a very common condition. And I think sometimes um, a phrase that might be overly used or wrongly used sometimes, Chris. So in a nutshell, what is sepsis and I suppose what is it not as well? So um, the current classical definition of sepsis is a source of infection, uh, confirmed or presumed clinically, uh, and then a uh, systemic response to that. Uh, no one's quite sure exactly what definition of sepsis is, which makes it quite difficult at times. But basically it's a maladaptive response to infection. So rather than your immune system just doing what it needs to do, it gets overexcited and uh, attach the rest of the body and you get a host of systemic problems secondary to that. Okay. Um, so when I was at medical school, which makes me sound a, a lot older than I probably am, we were taught two of SIRS, two SIRS criteria plus a source of infection. And we were kind of, we had the SIRS criteria sort of repeated ad nauseum. Um, is that still the case or are we moving away from SIRS now? So uh, we will be moving away from SIRS. Uh, I think that's still kind of where we're at for the next uh, few months. And it's what everybody's been taught. It's always a good place to start. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, probably the other way around. So the first thing you've got to do is, does this patient have an infection? I, mm-hmm. I've got a proven infection or, based on the balance of probabilities, the very likely to have an infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can go, right, now I need to assess for sepsis. Mm. You then go looking through your SIRS criteria. So you're right, there were originally four, there's now actually there's more than six, but six that kind of matter. Uh, so your white blood count, your respiratory rates, your heart rates, your temperature, uh, new confusion, and a new elevated blood sugar in the absence of diabetes. Okay. So you've got two of those, you've got a systemic inflammatory response syndrome, that's what SIRS is, and with infection, that's sepsis. Mm-hmm. And if people are SIRS positive, then it's worth asking the question is this an infection? But it's well worth remembering that being SIRS positive doesn't mean there's an infection causing it. Mm. Um, there was a study in the States um, from a few years ago that suggested that only one in four people presenting SIRS positive with triage had sepsis. So if you see somebody SIRS positive, do think infection, do think sepsis, but just keep your mind open to things like, is this pancreatitis? Is it a PE? Is it an MI? Mm. Is it DKA? Is it a toxic overdose? Is it liver failure? Is it renal failure? There's lots of things that can cause it. So it's just making sure you have that kind of broad approach to people being SIRS positive. So I suppose you, you, you're still going back to your history, aren't you, and, and thinking, are there infective symptoms and, and signs in this patient that I'm, I'm seeing in front of me? Isn't? Yeah, it's, that's totally it. Um, that's where everything to start, really. So the patient comes in with cough, green sputum, rigors, and it's got crackles on one side of the chest. It's in their brain to guess they've got a chest infection no matter what the x-ray says. Um, if somebody comes in with um, dysuria and loin pain, you know they've got pyelonephritis, that's fairly easy. Um, the problem comes when people come in non-specifically unwell or come in drowsy, non-communicative, and it gets harder to work out. There's mm-hmm. a little bit of clinical signs, but again, that's for the obvious things. 
and whilst most people have a chest, urine or intra-abdominal sore stone infection, you do sometimes have to just, again, if I can't find a source and the sore is positive and there's not something else and I think it's the infection, just think of the other places. So is it soft tissues, is it the spine, is it the heart, uh, sometimes is it the, the brain and the meninges. Just go again, looking carefully about what else, what, what else might be going on. Okay. Um, so, you know, say you're in recess, you've got a, a red phone coming in, there's a, a patient who's been labelled as query sepsis, you're there with your F1 in, in recess. Um, patient's just been brought in front of you, literally right there in front of you, what's your approach going to be? So, um, in recess it tends to be this bit where we do uh, an examination of the patient and, uh, and a history at the same time, so it's trying to glean information as you're giving them a, a quick once over. Um, so, underpinned by usual ABC approach to resuscitation, so, you know, what's their airway doing, are they breathing, what are their oxygen sats doing, do they need oxygen to support the sats at 94 or 88 to 92 for people who have got uh, risk of CO2 retention, um, what's the cardiovascular status like, getting our cannulas in that point, rubbing two sets of blood cultures from two sites to the minimum, um, where people always forget that quite a lot. And why um, is that so important, sorry, just to emphasize that point? Um, so, uh, one set of, well, no sets of blood cultures makes it very hard to identify the causative organism, Yeah. and it's nice to get a causative organism so you know what antibiotics will work, so you can narrow a spectrum down if you need to, or recognise resistance and change antibiotics. It also helps you confirm that something's going on. Uh, one set gives you about a 50%, I don't have to check the numbers, but about a 50% pickup rate, and every time you add another set of cultures on, you increase your accuracy mm. of knowing what's going on. Mm. And that's doubly important when it's skin commensals that might be causing the infection. Mm. So if you've not been quite good at prepping the skin for your one set of blood cultures, you'll never know if it's contaminated or not. Mm. If two or three cultures all have the same bug in it, then actually, either you've been very bad at taking a blood culture, <laughs> or it's likely causative. Mm. And it's, it's three sets in cultures if you're suspecting uh, endocarditis, isn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, and that's exactly why it's normally skin commensals that are involved in that a lot. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. So you, you've taken your cultures. Uh, any, anything else at that point when you're on um, the sea? And we're going to be taking all our other blood tests. So they'll probably mm. get an FBC, a UNE. Uh, we can debate a CRP. They'll have the FTs checked, um, a clotting. Um, mm. We might do a group and say, depending on what the history is like. Um, and we're going to get a venous blood gas to get a lactate, which mm. is important later on. And at this point, uh, if they're tachycardic, especially the hypertensive, then we're hanging some fluid up, uh, mm. trying to replace uh, losses that are either maldistribution or have been sort of losses out of the body. Mm. Uh, a quick check of the GCS to sort of deal it, uh, think about again is this an intracranial cause or how are they responding, how they get assigned, how shocked they might be. Mm. And we're going to check their blood sugar uh, at this point, which should be on the venous gas. Mm. And then E, just check the temperature and have a look at bits you've not looked at. So you'll have examined the chest in B, but have you felt the belly? Have you checked the limbs? Can you see a rash? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you see a cellulitis? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Give everything a wiggle and kind of get a feel for what's going on. Mm. And at the same time, somehow, whilst doing all of those things, uh, you're asking the important questions. The ample history is quite good at this point for getting the stuff you need right off the bat. So are they allergic to anything? Mm-hmm. So we've got lots of penicillin allergy out there. It's nice to know your antibiotics are going to be safe. Mm. What medications are they on? Mm. You can predict illness off that and you can predict response to, to medications and fluids. What illnesses do they have that might change their risk or how they're going to cope with this uh, mm. septic episode? Uh, and then whilst last eating and drinking is not necessarily an issue for uh, sepsis, the events, so what's been going on, what symptoms do they have, how long they've been on well for, mm. get a feel for what might be causing this. Mm. 
So you, you want to see that, that illness prodrome, don't you? You know, has there been a cough that's worsening or, you know, have they been abroad or all those sorts of things, I suppose, don't you? And abroad is important. We're all very bad at remember to ask a travel history, uh, especially when people have got sort of um, vague complaints or the younger people who seem to be really unwell. So, you know, most young people tolerate mm. illnesses quite well, not that elderly people with sort of weakened immune system. So if you're fit and well and you appear septic so it's worth just checking they've not been abroad and picked up something strange mm, okay and um so you mentioned lactate there as, as, as one of the important blood tests why is that particularly important in our patients who's query sepsis in front of us right now so uh lactate is one of the things we use to uh grade severity of sepsis um so there are classically uh, three grades of sepsis there's sepsis uh, there's severe sepsis uh, which is people who have organ dysfunction and there's a long list that people can look up of uh, abnormal blood tests to suggest different organs not working. And part of that is a lactate between two and four, mm-hmm. um, or blood pressure that responds to a fluid bonus. Okay. And then beyond that, we have septic shock, and that's people who've got um, lactates between two and four that don't respond to fluids. Uh, a lactate greater than four at any point, or hypotension that doesn't respond to fluids. So that lactate helps them guide us where they are in their severity spectrum, mm. uh, which helps us, one, how aggressive are we going to be? Mm. and to start to predicting about what next steps we need to be considering if things don't go right with plan A. Mm. And so um, you mentioned fluids, starting fluids. Um, is there a preference on a particular fluid and, and, and how much fluid we need to be giving? Um, so preference on fluid is a whole different topic. Uh, <laughs> I have a preference for, for Hartman's um, only because there's a lot less chloride than there is in saline and it reduces the risk of metabolic acidosis. Um, my top tip for picking a fluid is have a look at the blood gas. It'll have a chloride on it, it'll have a sodium on it, it'll have a potassium on it. It'll give you an idea about whether you want to go for Hartman's or for saline. But as long as it's crystalloid, go for it. We don't like giving colloid. Um, generally, uh, we're looking for about 30 mils per kilo is what we call loading bolus and severe sepsis and septic shock to see if people are fluid refractory or not. Mm-hmm. That doesn't have to be one very large 30 kilo hit all in one go. You can give it in 500 ml aliquots quite happily, especially worried about people's ability to tolerate a fluid challenge. Um, but once you've got that number in mind of 30 per kilo, because if you get there and things are getting better, then mm. you might be looking for plan B. And that's alongside other things. So um, we're not quite touched on yet, but there's something called sepsis sick. So we talk about within 60 minutes of uh, a diagnosis of uh, sepsis there are six things you want to do and I think of it as three things in and three things out so we kind of touch on some of them that's the two sets of blood cultures minimum and other culturing of sources if you can uh, that's your lactate mm. and another thing we kind of forget about but it's a catheter so we need to measure urinary output mm. it's guide to both um, fluid balance and renal function mm. and then the three things in them are kind of obvious that's uh, oxygen mm. um, to get the sats over 94 definitely uh, we can debate about hyperoxia to the cows come home. So, but oxygen in, uh, fluids in. So mm-hmm. again, get up to that 30 mils per kilo. Mm-hmm. And finally, antibiotics, really important. Um, if you can guess a source based on a clinical program and stuff, they mm-hmm. give the appropriate antibiotics based on your trust guidelines. If mm-hmm. you don't know the source, and that is, I've had a thing, I've had an exam, I've had a good look, there's nothing obvious, mm-hmm. there will be a sepsis unknown source guideline for your trust that's based on your local sensitivities and to run off the mm-hmm. organisms you want to cover. Okay, and early the antibiotics the better. I think that that's such a key lesson, isn't it? I think in all the cases of sepsis. So there's evidence to suggest that in severe sepsis and septic shock, which is where most of the trials are done. So 
bond or sepsis and have a lot of work under the severe septic and septic shock, uh, mortality increases by 7 to 8% per hour delay of antibiotics, which is a quite a powerful uh, mm. reason to get those mm. antibiotics in as early as you can. Mm. So um, I suppose, you know, we've talked about cough, make you concerned about chest sepsis, urinary symptoms make you worried about a, a urinary source, um, is there a cellulitic looking rash? Um, but you, what sort of things would you be looking for for another source, potentially, say, you know, uh, meningitis and encephalitis? What would make you suspicious of that? Um, so meningitis and encephalitis don't always cause sepsis, just because of the blood-brain barrier, but um, you're looking for things like uh, classical uh, headache, nest, stiffness, photophobia for people with meningitis. Encephalitis, mm-hmm. a bit more insidious. They're normally confused, altered, a bit bizarre, may mm-hmm. have headache. Uh, some of the meningitic features. Uh, intra-abdominal sepsis, you think things like biliary, so they've got pain, female and Murphy's positive, so quite abcordial tenderness is related to food and stuff. Um, perforation, uh, appendicitis, they're going to have vague pains that then become peritonitic, either become localised to one particular point or generalised with a rigid abdomen. Um, meningococcal sepsis is different to meningitis, uh, does have a nice following period rash. Mm. Uh, that's fairly uh, when you, once you've seen it, you'll never forget it, kind of rash. Um, it's probably in a lot of medical textbooks, there's probably a good photo of it with the glass tumbler, but uh, yeah. Yeah, you never find a glass tumbler in recess when you want one. <laughs> and then um, and then the other things are things like bone, soft joints, mm. uh, soft tissues, uh, joints, those things. Um, again, just be open to those sort of things. So, patient comes in looking fairly grotty, pyrexial, they're tachycardic, they've got a lactate of three, and what's going on when all they're complaining of is leg pain, mm. uh, or buttock pain, or so you don't need to get the septic uh, necessarily from a joint because they want to encapsulate it, but I've seen a few people now who've got uh, abscesses, um, necrotizing fasciitis, um, myositis, those sort of things, you get deep muscular soft tissue infections that can make you fairly fairly grotty so again it just comes down to what the patient says and how they examine mm. and you, you mentioned earlier about the spinal source sometimes so would that be feeling along the back and for, for tenderness or it's a bit difficult feeling along the back because all you can do is push on the tips of the spinal processes um, they're going to have back pain it's going to be deep it's going to be comfortable to move they may have neurology so if they've got neurology that comes with a cord level mm. and then they're, they're, they're grotty then that kind of points to a some sort of spinal uh, sorts of infection, but um, discitis may just be they've got back pain that's not settling, but it's an uncommon infection, so you're looking for reasons why they might have got that. So, are they intravenous drug user? Are they mm-hmm. malnourished? Are they uh, immunocompromised? Sort of things. Intravenous drug use also a risk factor for uh, bacterial endocarditis, aren't they, as well? And endocarditis is difficult because <laughs> you can't really feel it, so you're just going to be feeling grotty, pyrexial, tachycardic, uh, look septic, not got a source, and then just having a really good listen to that heart and can't hear a murmur. And if they're going to be septic from it, it should be a murmur you can hear quite easily even in the recess room. It's not a, a trivial flow of murmur. Okay. Um, right, so that's our approach to our patients, and, and we've, we've given antibiotics, and uh, we're pushing fluids through. Uh, now, some of the literature I've read about uh, with, with sepsis mentions been concerned about mean arterial pressure with these patients. Um, just a bit, what is mean arterial pressure and why are we were concerned about it in, in patients uh, with sepsis? So that's kind of as we're coming on to plan B. So patients who are failing to respond to therapy 
uh, to fluid therapy and maintaining a good blood pressure. Uh, we then thought about wanting to support the pressure with uh, something called vasopressors, so classic drugs that tighten the arterial system and help um, maintain the blood pressure that way, and also tighten the venous system to increase preload to the heart. Um, we talk about T blood pressure generally, so everybody knows about systolic blood pressure being the driving pressure and being an easy number to look at. But actually, mean arterial pressure is the average blood pressure throughout um, cardiac cycle, and probably the gives you a better determinant of how what blood flow there is to an organ. Um, and what we do is we want to fuse the organs, because if we don't mm. fuse the organs, then the organs sort of shut down, the mm. uh, body gets worse, and we get into this never-ending spiral, and it's breaking that spiral of multi organ failure that's mm. the key to making people better in sepsis, uh, and then giving the antibiotics time to work to get rid of the causative organism. So um, currently, uh, we aim for a map of 65 to 70, so um, if you want to work out, uh, then you get the systolic, the diastolic, um, work out the difference and the third of the difference added to the diastolic is your mean uh, I really am getting too lazy to do math <laughs> like in the research room so most blood pressure monitors will actually display it or if you've got an arterial line in mm. then so much the better so it's um, usually that number in brackets that's under your uh, systolic and diastolic blood pressure <laughs> yeah and so yeah some people go oh the heart rate doesn't match the bit of the monitor it's, <laughs> it's not the heart rate that's, that's the map um, but yeah so mean arterial pressure great way of showing and Literature is pushing for people who are known to be hypertensive to mm. need a higher map to fuse their organs and septics and get a better outcome. But mm. the evidence said no, just 65 to 70 should work for most, pretty much everybody. And if mm. they're not responding to that, then yeah, fine, think about putting it up. But there was no mm. particular difference in trying to work out a higher map strategy for people mm. who are known to be chronically hypertensive. Mm. I mean, it, it was um, explained to me by one of my medical consultants when I was uh, an F1 or F2 that um, there were two organs in the body that particularly do not tolerate ischemia very well, one being your brain and the other one being your kidneys and, and that's why there's a sense I suppose, of GCS, are they perfusing uh, their brain as, as well as they should and then I suppose that's the catheter as well, are they perfusing their kidneys, you know, are they producing a urine output? Yeah, and those are the easy ways you know, the better to work out whether you're perfusing those organs uh, and MAP is one of the things that those organs use to auto-regulate their blood flow, so that's what we like MAP. Um, just bearing in mind that you've got to be happy that they're, you know, it's not their kidneys are going into acute renal failure and that's why they're not uh, peeing. That's got to be careful with that mm-hmm. and making sure there's not something in their head that's making them unwell, which is why the GCS is drowsy. But yeah, mm-hmm. if you're in the bed, good idea that the fuels and the animal organs are. Are they awake? Are they talking? And are they peeing? Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose AKI is, is quite a common complication that we, that we can see in patients with sort of severe sepsis if they, if they drop that renal perfusion. Um, I suppose you talked about some other bloods to do, so, so I, LFTs are useful in this case as well as, as a look at, to measure for, for liver perfusion. And uh, they also, the, the guidance also mentions like a, a coag screen as well, isn't that right? Yeah, so there's um, so you can use your uh, INR, your prothrombin type, and your bilirubin as ways of looking at how your liver's working, liver's working synthetically and transaminase to see how well the cells are doing, using these to give you guide how your kidney's doing. Plotting platelet levels, give you an idea of how your marrow is working. They're generally what the blood tests are looking at. The other thing the clotting can look for is something called DIC or disseminated intervascular uh, coagulation, um, which is bizarrely a bit where you start bleeding from everywhere because you've consumed all your clotting factors. Um, you need a fibrinogen level to help you out with this as well, so it's not just a standard coag. Um, but basically, the clotting cascade is activated. Um, 
there was a theory that microclocks might be part of why sepsis makes you unwell, and we had a while where we were using a drug called activating protein C, but um, the evidence then proved that that didn't make a difference, that's been withdrawn. But in some people, the clotting cascade gets activated. Um, they make lots of lots of small clots, which may damage the organs. Uh, they consume all their clotting products uh, that they have uh, intrinsically. Then they effectively become anticoagulated by running out of intrinsic clotting products, uh, and then they'll just bleed from from everywhere. And that's uh, yeah, it's strange that clotting causes you to bleed, but that's how it works. Mm. That's what I suppose we're going to start to think about involving higher level care. That's the point. Is that the point you were talking about? Those vasopressors. That's that point. Yeah, so classically, um, there are a couple of reasons why uh, we go to high-level care. When we talk about high-level care, it's important we understand what we mean. So classically, there are uh, four levels of care. So we have level naught, which is standard ward care. Uh, level one, which is a sort of enhanced ward care. So you need some extra monitoring, um, but not needing any sort of organ support, per se. Um, there's level two care, which is where you don't need some organ support. So that's either non-invasive ventilation, that uh, vasopressor inotropes, having blood pressure, those sort of things. And that's what we think about when we think about high dependency units is level two care and sometimes level one. Mm. And then there's level three care, which is your full intensive care patient, that's somebody who's ventilated or on a replacement therapy or mm. those sort of things. And so you might need to go to level one care just to keep an eye on you. So you've had your 30 kilo fluids, mm. Mm. Um, your blood pressure has responded, your lactate wasn't up before, your heart rate's come down to, so 100-ish, got, you're making urine, but actually you look grotty, mm. um, your kidneys maybe aren't as happy as they should be, and you're just not quite right. And you want to put you just out on the floor on a normal ward, just keeping you somewhere a bit closer to keeping on you, not mm. a bad idea. Um, but level two and level three care is when you're not really responding to treatment. So yeah, since your blood pressure's not working, we think about putting in invasive lines, by that mm. we mean a, a central line. Mm and then an arterial line. Uh, the benefits of those are that we can monitor, uh, monitor people's uh, mean arterial pressure to give us a target for fusing organs. Uh, the central line is a great way of delivering the vasoactive drugs we need to um, maintain people's uh, blood pressure uh, over, if we need to put them on for more than a couple of hours, then we need a central line to deliver that. Okay. And um, so we We've discussed already about uh, sort of sepsis six and, and the SERS uh, sort of criteria, and, and you mentioned that that's probably the, the case for the next few months. But there is new guidance coming forward, isn't there, uh, from Nice with regard to uh, sepsis management? Yeah. So, um, I mean, even more recently, early in the year, we had something called sepsis three come out. Um, it's called sepsis three for a couple of reasons. One, it's the third uh, definition of sepsis that's been been made. It's the first update for very long time um, and also it kind of centres around uh, three things in the screening test um, rather than SERS. That's probably going to be a research tool more than anything else in this country and uh, we're we here are going to be adopting the new SNICE guidelines that came out uh, earlier this summer um, so for anybody who wants to have a quick read pause a second and go look for NG51 or the NICE uh, sepsis guidelines. They've uh, divided sepsis up to in and out of hospital responders and uh, by age groups, so you can get uh, the variation in kids um, is important. And then that's got a nice little flow chart, uh, which you just kind of work yourself through. So does my patient have an infection? Yes. Uh, then go to the left, do they have any of the red box criteria? And these are the guys who are going to be in the severe sepsis or septic shock. And it's asking for high heart rates, high respiratory rates, uh, altered mental status, uh, mm. and a few other bits. 
and then yep you're unwell you need aggressive therapy and then we use a lactate on the back of that red box to further gradate you into just exactly how severe on what your risk of death is and try to think about how aggressive we're going and where we're going to be looking after you. Mm. If somebody doesn't have any red box criteria then there are some yellow box criteria and these are to find people at moderate risk of poor outcome and you need a couple of those or AKI or a raised lactate. Um, again, you're not happy in that group and you can be transferred to the high risk group. Otherwise, the people who need uh, review within uh, a reasonable time frame uh, and consideration of what's going on and early implementation of care but not quite as urgent and sort of one hour bundles we get in the red box sepsis. And then finally, if you've got no red box or amber box features, you're going to green box, which is probably just an infection. And mm. actually, if your physiology is okay, then we don't need to kind of worry so much about sepsis. So uh, we're currently working out with, the, uh, with our sepsis group how we're going to uh, make that uh, work in the, hospital, in the trust and bring everybody across so we're all singing off the same hymn mm. sheet. One of the authors of those guidelines is one of our very own ITU uh, and acute medicine consultants, Dr. Simmons, isn't it? Yeah, Mark, who uh, leads our sepsis action group and has done a lot of work for sepsis within the trust. Um, so he's going to be helping us uh, take this forward and really move us across mm. onto nice guidelines. Okay. So I think, I mean, we all see the posters, and, and I know Sally Wood, who's one of the, the sepsis nurses here, does a lot of, of work on sepsis still kills. You know, we sometimes underestimate it. But I just wanted, as, as we're coming to a close, just to, to talk about, I know, a, a bugbear of your own, uh, the, the, the asymptomatic positive urine dip. Oh, <laughs> I, I thought for our new F1s, should probably should hear, hear this. <laughs> okay, uh, so a little bit off topic. Um, so the so NUH has quite clear trust guidance on when to do a urine dip for infection. Um, so in a patient who's cognitively intact, they need to have symptoms. And that goes with, um, you wouldn't turn around and x-ray somebody's leg to see if they've got a broken bone if they were awake. You could tell you they hadn't hurt it. Uh, you wouldn't do an ECG to look for an MI if they hadn't come in with chest or abdo pain uh, in the region, you know, considering to, to explain it. So. Uh, dipping urine for infection in cognitively intact uh, individuals without symptoms um, gives you uh, either negative results you knew you were going to have hmm. or gives you uh, false positives um, either because there's something that's reacting with it or they've got asymptomatic, asymptomatic bacteria and unless you're pregnant we don't treat asymptomatic bacteria. Uh, difficulty comes in people who are not cognitively intact and so uh, people who are acutely delirious, whatever the age, or we look at elderly population with a sort of a cognitive impairment and dementia. Again, you've just got to take it step by step. The older you get, the more likely you are to have asymptomatic bacteria. So before you dip that weed, just make sure it is something that might be a UTI. Mm. So find elderly people who are septic, who can't tell you've got no symptoms, and you can't trust them because they've got cognitive impairment. By all means, do it. Um, or they've got a bit of tummy pain or something vague and you know, bear in mind that it might not be the cause. Mm. You know, it may be asymptomatic, it might not be what's driving on. So again, just think carefully about just because we've got positive urine dip, that might not be the answer. Mm. I suppose it's a point you also mentioned earlier about um, just go changing potential source going onto the chest. That's a, an, an absence of pneumonia on, in, on a chest X-ray. You, if they're clinically pneumonic, you should go towards your, more your clinical picture. Uh, chest X-rays aren't perfect uh, for 
showing uh, radiographic signs of chest infections. So if you've got a nice big lump of consolidated lung all together, then yes, an X-ray is going to get through and you get a nice big white chunk on your X-ray. But if it's a diffuse pattern, if it's early, there are many reasons why you won't get it. And there are studies showing that the uh, sensitivity specificity for chest X-ray for pneumonia isn't the, uh, the high numbers we think or would like it to be. Mm. So again, come back to, to basics. Um, patients got a cough, they're tachypneic, they've got a bit hypoxic, and they've got crackles on one side of the chest. Mm. Um, the question is, do you believe your observations and clinical skills and history, or do you believe uh, one small dose of radiation? So it's about taking it all in context, really. Mm. Absolutely. And I suppose, just as a final question, I suppose um, some um, trust guidelines and will say you need to discuss with microbiology, uh, with a microbiology specialist before you proceed. Uh, is there anything else in a, in, in a patient's history or, or features that if you were seeing a patient with sepsis that might make you want to get a, a specialist microbiology opinion before you proceeded? Um, so I think it depends a little bit. Uh, some of the guidelines uh, talk about getting microbiology advice for query meningitis and things like that. And I think that's um, maybe a throwback to to other times I would just give the antibiotics and if it's one o'clock in the morning I'd let my microbiology colleague sleep because <laughs> it's not going to change any management in the middle of the night. Um, the microbiologists are there for either someone's got something weird and wonderful so if they've been abroad uh, then infectious diseases mm-hmm. or if they're not there by the microbiology might give some advice. Uh, you've taken the time to look at the fact this patient's been treated four times for UTI uh, in the past two weeks. You've looked on the computer, mm-hmm. they actually grew bugs all four times but they're starting to get resistance and you start to wonder actually do I want to just give them yeah. standard antibiotic and then you might go to some advice get something alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, or if there's some reason why they can't have the standard antibiotics that are out with what the guidelines give you. So um, severe penalty penicillin allergy that is also allergic is reacted to cephalosporins and their kidneys are shot for mm. X and Y and you're really struggling again microbiologist is the person to go to but uh, generally your trust guidelines should cover sort mm. of 99% of what you need to do uh, first line the other place they're really great is uh, day two day three as results come available as patients aren't responding to therapies expected mm. then again microbiologist great people to have a chat with to work out mm. what you might be missing and, and very often, they even without you ringing them, I remember when I've uh, been an F1, F2 on the ward, if your patient grows something interesting, they ring you and say, we, they've grown this bug, how are they, what are you giving? Um, they're, they're, they're proactive rather than you calling them. Indeed, and we get it in the emergency department all the time as well. We have blood culture sent off and patients will be discharged and then the protocol should be positive, the necrobologists will ring your and say, um, just to let you know, this patient grew uh, pneumococcus or... Or something stranger uh, in their blood cultures, and how are they? And you'll go, okay, let's have a look. Talk about home oral antibiotics, and, mm. but you bring them up, and sometimes they're a lot better actually. You know, they mm. just needed oral antibiotics, and mm. yes, they have bugs in their blood. That's to expect. They had an infection, but mm. actually, they weren't toxic and they were okay. Mm. I suppose it's, it's also. I mean, yeah, I, I had a, a case just the other week that, that reminded me of this. Um, to be aware of notifiable diseases, so infections that that may need to be discussed with with public. Yeah, I mean, there's a long list. Um, I mean, we're not going to go through the long list, no, but it's, uh, I think it's, it's worth being aware of that list and, and, and of, of yeah. the more common things that are on there. So, yeah, um, standard things are going to be uh, things like some of your viral things like Mizamons, Rubella. Um, uh, meningitis is still on there from off the top of my head. Um, 
but yeah, it's worth looking through. And if it's something that's a little bit atypical as well, so if it's not a bug or a chest infection or mm. a polynephritis or something like that, then again, it's worth looking. Oh, there's something strange. We just need to look up the notifiable diseases list. Mm. Um, it used to be paid, I think it was £2 for notifying it. I don't know if that's still the case. Um, it's if it is, I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not worth the ink on the paper anymore. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, that's, I suppose, um, finally, the, yeah, as we've mentioned the, the fever and the returning traveller as well, I suppose, and just to re-emphasise the point of, did they have the vaccines before they went? Is it a malaria area they went to? I mean, the Foreign Office on the websites offers a lot of information about the, the disease risks, and if it is malaria area, were they on prophylaxis? Um, yeah, it's really important. So it's not just knowing... Um, country. Uh, I went to India, that's great. India's a very big place. It's got a very large spread of malarial risk. Uh, had a patient in the other day where we were trying to work out where they'd been to work out what the malarial risk was. Yeah. Um, so not just country, real good travel history. So when did they go? Mm. When did they come back? Exactly where were they? Where were they staying? What were mm. they doing? What were they potentially exposed to while they were there? Not just were they prescribed anti-malarials, but did they actually take them? Did they take them every day properly, or did they miss a couple of days because they'd had a couple of beers too many or something like that? Mm. Um, so that's all really important. And you're right, just asking, were you told to have any of the travel vaccinations before you went? Did you have them? Did you have any reactions to them? So those sort of things mm. there's, a, there's a very big difference, I suppose, uh, being in an air-conditioned hotel eating Michelin-star food, or I went into the bush and it was cooked for me in, in front of a fire and we camped and there wasn't a malaria net and things like that. Yeah, it's very different. Sorry, mosquito net. No. That's right. Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, what you do is very different. I'm yet to experience the, uh, the Michelin-star uh, <laughs> five-star hotel bit. Um, it's the downside to being a parent. Uh, kids cost you money, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, what you do makes a big difference. So again, just reiterating that point. Mm. You know, not just where you've been, but what you did. And getting in that malaria screen as well. Yeah, and malaria screens vary depending on where you're at. Some people study thick and thin, some people have PCR tests and things like that. So mm. just knowing what your lab wants and what the implications of that test being positive or negative mean. So um, the other important thing in sepsis that we forget is source control. Um, so we're all very quick uh, to try and give antibiotics and uh, we can debate our, how often we give antibiotics and when we should or shouldn't, but uh, antibiotics only work um, if there's something antibiotics can get to. If there's an abscess or a collection or it's something deep, then actually antibiotics can take too long. Actually going getting the causative agent out by use of needle or operation uh, is really important. Mm. So uh, when you think of people who've got collections or deep infections or intraplubble stuff, then early source control to remove it and allow them to be stabilised is uh, important and well worth discussing. Mm. I suppose there's also that thought that if you think it's an, Im, um, an infected pick line, for example, or, or something uh, iatrogenic that, uh, that you think is infected. Yeah, and that's something we didn't uh, talk about, but yeah, line sepsis uh, is really important. Uh, peripheral cannulas are easy, uh, just take them out. <laughs> that's really simple. and. Most microbiologists I'm aware of probably don't want that tip from that cannula. I think that's a myth. And again, for catheters, if somebody's catheterised and has a UTI, take that catheter out, put a clean one in. Uh, but again, I'm not sure they particularly want the tip of the catheter. Just be careful with some of the indwelling uh, long lines or central lines. Mm. Different protocols apply to different lines. So before you whip out that surgically placed 
um, Hickman <laughs> line that is the patient's only access and you may want to use yourself, just double check that A, you have an alternative source of access and B, that that's the protocol for that line. Occasionally, mm. um, these lines get left and have antibiotics down them as opposed to being removed. So, yeah, so indwelling central access, do talk to somebody early, so a vascular surgeon or an interventional radiologist, mm-hmm. uh, but don't just whip it out. But cannulas, catheters, get them out. That was the Take Orally Sepsis podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to guidelines mentioned and you can contact us there to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future podcasts. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.